0: Without further ado, let's dive into the show. Welcome to the Pathless Path. I'm Paul Millard, and in this podcast, we examine the invisible scripts that run our lives and dare to imagine new stories for work and life. Welcome to this edition of the Pathless Path podcast. Today, I am talking to Andy Schoonover. He is the founder of CrowdHealth, and as you might've noticed, a sponsor of this podcast and really appreciate it him and his company sponsoring me. Uh, But I am talking to him today because I am curious about his personal story, how he got to founding CrowdHealth, uh, some of the steps along the way. We're gonna dive into healthcare, how to think about healthcare for the US and solopreneurs and self-employed people like me and you, the listener, um, what the future of that looks like and all of that. Welcome to the podcast, Andy.
1: Man, thanks for having me. Appreciate it.
0: Yeah, excited to dive in today. We're definitely going to get into the state of the healthcare system, which has sort of emerged as a recurring topic for this podcast, but <laughs> want to dive into your story first. Maybe bring us back to Andy growing up. What were some of the stories and scripts you had about what you were supposed to be doing once you arrived in adulthood? What did success look like? For you and your mind
1: growing up, yeah, it's a it's a great question. So I, I grew up one of five kids, um, the second youngest. So I don't know, you know, what what that makes me or what I'm supposed to be. Second youngest of of five kids. It's actually even more complicated because me and my older bro- my my next sibling are ten years apart. So um, there's 10 11 12 years between my older siblings and then four years between me and my younger siblings. So my mom and dad had kids over seven to 17 or 18 year period. Um, so I'm kind of maybe screwed up if you were to look at the, the, uh, the, the order in your family analysis that I know a lot of people um, you know look at. but you know funny is I you know I, I remember very vividly mentioning to my mom who um, has a a brother, so my uncle and his family are all just super, super successful people. You know, a bunch of doctors and entrepreneurs. And and I remember saying to her, I want to be successful like them. And, you know, her response was, well, I guess it really depends upon how you measure success. Um, And, you know, we've got a family of five, nobody's in jail. You have a a mom and dad who love you um, and, you know, so how do you define that success actually my 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 uh, uncle had you know a great family too, but I was totally measuring success in the status of doctor, entrepreneur, you know and and ultimately, that was money, right? It's how many zeros in your bank account and so, as a young kid, I was always trying to be entrepreneurial, trying to make you know the next the next buck, whether it be mowing lawns or. You know back in the day, I really um, found that uh, uh, umpiring baseball games, you know, for 35 bucks for two hours was like pretty awesome money for somebody like me. Um, and so I did lots of umpiring baseball games, and, and ultimately, I had to pay for my car, I had to pay for my car insurance, I had to pay for college, um, I had to pay for all of those things, and so there was just kind of this thing that was ingrained in me that you would have to take care of yourself nobody else is going to take care of you and so go out and work and so I was I was working pretty consistently from you know sophomore year of high school all the way through college um, doing you know like I said, the first lawn and then umpire baseball games and in college I was flipping burgers at the the local you know college joint on campus so it was always kind of a work-based culture for me
0: yeah It's interesting to compare those two sort of scripts, right? Like make as much money as possible, um, be successful. It's hard to escape that, right? Our culture puts so much attention on that, even if you're hearing different messages. Mm -hmm. Were your parents telling you explicitly, like you need to make your own way as early as possible? It's
1: all on you. It It really kind of was. I mean, my parents, I kind of said, it's on you. Like, if you want something, you have to go figure out how to buy it. And I came from a, a lower middle-class family too. So, um, you know, it wasn't because they were heartless or, you know, or even maybe even didn't do it because of they wanted me to be um, kind of motivated to do that later in life. It was really just a out of necessity. It was a Hey, listen. You know, if you want to buy a car, we don't have enough money to buy you a car when you're 16. So you have to go and buy it if you really want it. Um, if you want to go to a great college, you're going to have to pay for it. So go figure out how to pay for it. And so it was kind of just like a, a figured out a problem solving as 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 I went. You know, especially in my high school and in college years. Um, but I think ultimately looking back at that, I was like, man, well that was the that was the best upbringing I could have I could have ever gotten. I mean, you look at some of these entrepreneurs today, some of the most successful ones, and a lot of them came from not a lot, like they just had to to to, to make it, right? Um, I had an interesting conversation the other day with a good friend of mine who I went to Stanford with. And I said, I wonder if there's any correlation between intelligence and entrepreneurship, almost as if the the higher intelligence you are, the more times you have to get that A on the test, like you strive for the A, right? And if there's ever a B or a C, it totally breaks your identity. You know? Whereas you know, an entrepreneur is one where like, I'm, I'm looking for those Bs and those Cs so that I can learn for them. So ultimately I can get that A, right? But a lot of people who go to Ivy League schools and go to like, you know, grow up really wealthy and always have to live up to that standard. Um, I think it's generally harder for them to take that leap off the off the cliff and try to fly, knowing that you might hit the ground a couple times before you figure out how to flap your wings. So um, I don't know. It's, I don't, I'd, I'd be interested if there was a study or a correlation there, but it just seems to to um, you know, the smarter the people I meet, the more they're likely to go into private equity or fin, you know other types of finance or things where it's like you are going to make a lot of money. You know, there there is the, the probability of failure is much lower. So I don't know if there's a correlation there, but it's an interesting um, theory. Yeah. I, I think it's, I mean, you're also
0: framing it on this very narrow idea of intelligence as like an analytical sort of, uh, IQ testability when, I mean, from my experience, um, I was always good at school. So I kept going along those paths and sort of like fell into those paths. But when I became self-employed, I realized like, the real skill is not like being good at math or like doing good on the test. (laughs) It's like learning to manage the emotions of like extreme uncertainty or not knowing what you're doing, Um, which is a whole nother type of intelligence. And I think it can be developed, but it can be terrifying if you're good at other things, right? If you're good at other things, it's kind of crazy to blow up your life and take a different path. Um, so I'd, I'd be interested. You went to Virginia, which is a great school um and it's also a state school um which is amazing for people that grew up in Virginia I don't know if you grew up there but um I'd love to hear what that experience is like because that's definitely a world that's like a state school but also has access to some of these more
1: prestigious paths um sure. what was that like for you yeah sure i mean i and you know funny enough um i went through high school and i wasn't a great student um and so I actually went to uh, James Madison University my first year. So it's kind of a, a second tier school in in Virginia, in in the state of Virginia. And I had to go to Virginia into a Virginia school because I was paying for it. I had to get in state tuition, like that was my only choice. And so my my uh, guidance counselor said, "Don't even apply to UVA because you're not going to get in." And so I was like, "Okay, I won't." And so I, I went to JMU my first year and did really really well there. And then transferred in after my second year. Um and so, you know, again, like trying to 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 pave a path of of to prosperity, right? Um, in any way that I could. And if it meant going to, you know, a different school before I ultimately went to the one that I that I, you know, went to is is the path that I chose. Um and so, you know, UVA, yeah, it was a totally different, different animal. Um, you know, super highly competitive. Um very kind of finance driven. I went to the undergrad B school there, McIntyre School of Commerce there. Um, so I thought I was gonna do um, hedge fund stuff. Um, UVA is a very hedge fund focused finance undergraduate program. And so I thought I was gonna go do the hedge fund thing. I actually did a hedge fund, work for um, Blue Ridge Capital, which is uh, one of the the Tiger Cubs, um, Between my junior and senior year of 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 undergrad, and that was in 2000. So, um, for those of you who can remember back to 2000, um, it was a whirlwind. It was you know in March of 2000, everything came tumbling down. I worked in New York, June, July, August of 2000. So just a couple months later, you know it was a fiasco. You know there, Um, I was like, man, I just can't emotionally take the up and down <laughs> swings of, of the market. Um, you know, my, my stock pick would be up 10% one day and the, the portfolio manager would come and say, why is it up 10%? I was like, I have no idea. You know, it's down <laughs> 10% the next day. Why is it down for 10%? I have no idea. So I decided not to do that. And, um, instead went into real estate, which is like the exact opposite, right? It's like still finance, but it's like, you know, stable. Um, and so I, I thought I was going into a stable uh, organization, but I, I joined a uh, host hotels and resorts in July of 2001. Um, we all know in September of 2001, the World Trade Center came down um, and we owned the, the, my, the company I work for owned that Marriott hotel that sat at the base of the World Trade Center and got destroyed um, in, in September 11th. And so I spent the next year and a half working with the port authority and all the stakeholders of that, trying to figure out what was next. And so it's just one of those crazy, you know, moments in time where I got to do something really, really interesting, um, and you know, never had expected to to be be in that place just a couple months out of undergrad. What did you learn from that? What like what
0: what was that like? I I don't know exactly what you were doing, but I imagine you were facing all like. New scenarios. It wasn't like go run this hotel and increase opex ten percent.
1: Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was crazy. I mean, because I remember vividly that I was. I'm 43, so you know, like I said, I I was graduating college right as, as this was happening, and um, you know, I was I was working in in Maryland, um, and I could see the smoke from the Pentagon from my office, and so it was, you know, it was real. It was it was a a real thing where. And we were right across the street from, um, I think it was Lockheed Martin or something like that. And so they thought, you know, for a period of time, they thought they were going to target every, you know, military type of company. And so there was that was surrounded. It was it was crazy. But in terms of of the work, it was um, it was it was. Interesting because ultimately what I was doing was we had a lease on that space. So the Port Authority of of New York New Jersey owns that entire piece of land down there, and then we had a, a long term lease. But with that lease, we couldn't use the lease, and so there was something in our lease that says, "Hey, it was unusable." Then we can get out of the lease. Um, and then we were also working with an insurance company where you know we had this building that was worth hundreds of millions of dollars getting destroyed, and so you know, working with the the insurance company on how to do that. And so it doesn't sound like that much fun, but it was just such an interesting thing because nobody had ever done something at that scale with, you know, leases and insurance. And so, um, you know, and and ultimately there was going to be lawsuits. Fortunately, it got worked out before, you know, lawsuits happened. But as somebody who was 20, I guess 22 at the time, it was an incredible experience to kind of be in the middle of basically a, you know, multi-billion dollar, deal um and doing all the analysis back end analysis of that. So it was it was, a, it was a lot of fun. You know, the only thing I would I would say that um it was a big learning and I look back and as people ask me like what do I should what should I do after college, you know, um I tell them I was like get into a jo- into a job where you can be in the middle of the decision making, you know? And and that at host hotels and resorts was a $12 billion REIT But I was reporting. I was only two steps down from the CEO, and so I was in the middle of these, sitting in the conference room with, you know, the head of M and A, the CEO of the company, the CFO of the company, and I got to see how the 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 decisions were being made. As a 22 year old, I was like, man, that's that's a great place to be. Um, So. Have more thoughts on kind of you know on on on, on that route path, but um, I was just very very fortunate to get into this company where where I got to see see the decisions happening for very large deals. When you decided to go to business school, were you thinking to continue on in real estate, or what what was driving you at the time? Yeah, it really was. I thought I was going to go do real estate. I mean, you put in my application to to Stanford that I was going to do a real estate investment fund after I got out, um, and then I got there and. Um, and you know most people who listen to this know know Stanford a super entrepreneurial place. You know, Andy Grove, who started Intel, you know, taught one of the classes. Like you know, it's it's that type of wow. situation. You you know, you stall. Saw Steve Jobs once in a while around Palo Alto. Like it was a crazy place to be. And we anyway, here's you have a really crazy story. Um, have you seen uh, the movie The Social Network about Facebook? Yeah. Yeah, so there's a subplot in that movie where uh, Zuckerberg moves from Boston to Silicon Valley with a bunch of his buddies. And Eduardo has to go to his dad to get a check for, I can't remember exactly what it was in the movie, but like 16 or $18,000 to pay for this house for the summer as they moved. Well, that house was my house. Like, so Zuckerberg actually showed up at my house with a check. Um, to rent out our house for the summer because we were all doing internships. So wow. we had put our house. I think it was up on a Craigslist. Funny enough, and uh, Zuckerberg saw it, and so he stayed in our house, and that was the house in the movie. Um, so kind of a fun, funny kind of time, right? In in Silicon Valley, and um, a bunch of my friends went and, and did Facebook and Google and, and all of those things, and. Uh, I decided to, to take the the path less traveled um, and and do a search fund, which um, is basically, you know we would raise a little bit of funds to go out and find a company to buy. And then when we found the company to buy, we'd go back out to those investors and say, hey, now I need more money for um, the equity investment in that. So, um, yeah, we did that in 2000, uh, 2006, right before the financial crisis. It's like I'm perfect in my timing for a huge, <laughs> around the world yeah what uh what was the energy at Stanford
0: at the time because it's definitely an entrepreneurial place but it was not I mean I went to business school in 2010 and even then it was not obvious that like this whole tech boom that is now literally transformed our global world um was going to happen like was there a sense there because it was
1: Stanford or like what was the general consensus? I think people had a sense. I didn't because I did not come from technology. Yeah. And and back to that Zuckerberg story, it was kind of funny because I went back to my house and there was a, a receipt for the Ritz Carlton in New York with Mark Zuckerberg's name on it. And so I went into, to school and, and there was a guy um, who um, was at Excel when Excel did the first institutional investment into Facebook. And I go up to him, and I was like, can you believe they're spending your money this way? And he just looked at me and he's like, it's going to be okay. You know, like he knew, <laughs> you know, but back in that time, you had to have like a .edu email yeah. address to be on Facebook. And so I was just ignorant probably of how big this was going to, to be. And maybe if I wasn't so ignorant, I would have stayed out there and participated in the the upside, you know? I had classmates who were the chief revenue officer and the head of HR when Facebook went public. You know, and those those folks made tens, if not hundreds, of millions of dollars as a result of that. Um, but I decided to go to Dayton, Ohio, of all places, and buy a search fund. You know, a little healthcare business in Ohio. So all my my Silicon Valley friends were like, "Are you kidding me? You're going to Ohio um, <laughs> from Silicon Valley?" <laughs> yeah, and it seems so obvious
0: now, but at the time. It- the general consensus was, how do you actually make money with a social network? Yeah. Right? Even MySpace was sort of failing, so it wasn't obvious that Facebook was going to do it. And then even then, they, until they pivoted to mobile, they didn't really have a long-term sustainable um, moat. But uh, yeah, that's that, that's fascinating. So yeah. shared this worked in the same house as uh, Mark Zuckerberg. Yeah. Um, right you so you end up doing the search fund and you find a i believe is a telehealth company um yeah. so maybe for the listeners like tell us a little bit about um a, what a search fund is and how you embark on that process i'm familiar with it but i yeah. don't know if a lot of people
1: will be familiar with that yeah so search fund it's it's been around for a while i think the first one was like in the 80s you know like 80s or early 90s or something like that um and in essence what this is is you're going to go to a group of people and you're going to raise you know three or four hundred thousand dollars um maybe it's five or six hundred thousand dollars now um from a group of 10 or 20 people and they're each going to give you if it's 20 people we'll just say twenty thousand dollars each so you have four hundred thousand dollars to go and find a company to buy so that will pay for your salary, which was you know next to nothing. Um, you know I think I made like 70 grand or something like that coming out of of, of Stanford <laughs> uh, as a, as a search funder. Um, it'll pay for attorneys and you know due diligence and accountants, all those kinds of things to find a company to buy. and then you would go back to those 20 investors and you say, hey, I now need you know $4 million to buy the company for the equity in the company. So will each one of you write me a check for $200,000. And so um, you raise that money and then you buy the company. And, and then the way that the search funders are compensated is typically what happens is you get somewhere between 50 and 30% of the upside. So if you buy a company for 10 and it goes to 110 Million, then you created a hundred million dollars of value, and then the search funder gets, you know, somewhere between fifty and thirty million of that. Uh, so that's how the the economics work. It's it's a little bit like a a, a one investment private equity fund um, where the one investment is actually run by the the fund manager, right? Um So it's a little bit different like that, but the economics are are, are, are somewhat similar. Um, so that's how a search fund does, and I think it's been done. 4 or 500 times now over the last you know 40 or 50 40 30 or 40 years um and and been fairly successful so it's it gives people with very little man- management skill um experience um to actually go and run a company so you know I was 28 years old when I got out of business school and ended up buying a company that was had you know 20 people in it um and so that that's a pretty cool thing to 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 do as a 28 year old yeah. And how did
0: you find uh, the company? And when, once you found the company, what does that look like? Do you move to the place and just show up and start yeah. working in an office or?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So we, we um, you know, it was one of those, those I think it was a pretty late night where I came back home after going to the bar, if we're being totally honest with each other. Um, and I'm watching TV and I see one of these commercials of I have Fallen and I Can't Get Up. I don't know if you've ever seen it. It's you know the old lady sitting on the ground. She presses (laughs) the button and she's like, I've fallen and I can't get up. You know, and so I'm sitting there and I'm kind of giggling. I'm like, this is the one of the dumbest commercials I've ever seen. Right? Like, what a stupid industry that is. And then as I started thinking about, it, I was like, okay, what are the type of businesses that I want? I want a growing market. Right? The baby boomers are getting older. They're you know there's an aging of the population trend that's happening. I want a business with recurring revenue, which means somebody pays me every single month. And so I don't have to go out and, you know, repeat my revenue generation every single month. Um, And, you know, I want something with a decent margin. And so I kind of looked at those three characteristics. I was like, I bet you actually this company fits those three characteristics. So actually, let's go and look and see if there are any other companies like this. So I put up a list of like, I think it was 30 or 40 of those medical alert system companies. I started at the bottom and called the person at the very bottom for like the person that I like, I was least interested in buying because I don't know nothing about this industry. So if you start with the person that you're least interested in, you can look like an idiot in front of that person so that when you make it up the list to companies that you actually would wanna buy, you're way smarter about the industry. And so, yeah, we, we, we did that and then found a guy in, in Dayton, Ohio and we you know got, we went there, I think two or three days later um and and talked to him and ended up buying that company. Um and we ultimately turned it in from like a medical alert company, which is if you fall, you press a button. We kind of looked at that and said we're being very reactive to this. And so, what if we put a Bluetooth module in there and started monitoring blood pressure cuffs and weight scales and and in uh, glucometers and things like that, so that we can actually keep people from having you know acute events. Right. And so we turned that into a more of a remote patient monitoring company. We were grabbing a bunch of different pieces of data out of the home to try to get people um, to, uh, you know, get stay for stay, stay, keep from falling and keep them out of the hospital. So that's what we did. So we we grew that company about like 20 people to I think when I left about seven years later, we were at about 300 FTEs. So it was a huge, huge win and and a ton of fun.
0: Yeah. And di- I mean, did you literally like, I mean, what is that like coming in as an outsider? Like, how do people in a company like that, 20 people react to a 28 year old coming in and be like, Hey, I bought your company. Yeah, I am now out. also
1: the CEO. <laughs> what is that? what is that experience like? Yeah. Freaked out. They were totally freaked out. <laughs> you know, I mean, there's a bunch of funny stories. One is like, we were the, the previous owner had already, uh, uh, scheduled like redoing all the floors in the in the office and so he had everybody put everything that they owned you know in the box on their desk so you 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 find out that you put every you need to put everything from your desk into a box and then new guys show up on Monday and they're like oh my gosh they're going to fire us all you know like that was their, uh we were like no no we're not going to fire you please you know um, and I, then we said, hey, we're not gonna do anything for 90 days. We're just gonna sit and listen and learn, right? And we did, we took a kind of a humble approach and was like, we got on, you know, we learned how to do the call center stuff. We learned how to do all the accounting stuff. We literally learned all the components and sat next to the people. But on day 91, everybody thought, in the company thought that we were learning all this stuff so that we could replace them. So they all thought they were gonna getting, getting, you know, <laughs> pink slips on day 91. Right. So it's, man, it's just, you know, managing people is really, really hard, managing those emotions and, and, you know, trying to prove yourself to them and um, have them get to know your heart and not just assume that you're coming in as like corporate raiders that are going to, you know, slash and burn everything. And so it was, uh, it was a challenge, especially as a 28 year old who was, you know, immature and didn't know which way was up, you know, for the most part.
0: Yeah. And what about that industry? I mean, it seems like, I'm guessing that company did pretty well during COVID. Um, if if they're still around, I don't know what the, the yeah, status of the company yeah. is. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, it seems like this is going to be a continued huge area of healthcare, just Normal, in terms mate. of like remote monitoring. Because, I mean, it seems the answer to a lot of healthcare is just like not actually doing doctor's visits and like preemptively planning for these things so how were you seeing it at the time is that still where the company's headed
1: yeah it's very similar and it's now you know got sold again for three times what we sold it for and so you know a part of me is like oh man we should have stuck around but a part of me too is like man it's, it's good to have done something that um, continues on after you leave you know it's not built upon one person it's built upon a really solid foundation of of growth so it's you know it's taken off you know since we since we sold it um, and you, i forget what your other question was um yeah, yeah oh, just it's, is, is the way is the path to healthcare you know some of these um, preventative things or getting rid of some of the preventative things or not going to the doctors i think it's it's actually the hospitals you know, it's, it's, if you, what we were trying to do is keep people from going into the hospital. Cause once you walk into the hospital, you know, if you're admitted, you're 10 grand down, you know, like that, right. There's no question about it. And so we, we were trying to keep people, you know, from going to the hospital as much as possible. And, and even to this day with crowd health, I mean, that's what we're trying to do is like, Hey, don't go to the hospital, you know, unless you're about to die. Like, <laughs> yeah, you know, there's, there's, we had people go to the hospital for the flu and for COVID and for, you know, a broken finger and all these kinds of things. It's like, you don't want to be in the ER with a bunch of sick people, you know, if you can go to urgent care or some other location to get yourself taken care of. Um, And, you know, urgent care is one tenth the cost of, of, you know, an ER visit. So we're really trying to keep people from, from going to to the ER that aren't absolutely required. When you left uh, VRI, what, was that transition like? Did
0: you go straight into doing your investment fund? Were you doing that full time? Was there a period of like
1: contemplation of what do I do next? Mm. Yeah, so um, yeah, it's a, it's a strange thing when you sell your company and then I transitioned out over a couple of years um, and you know then not having anything to do. I mean, you go through a super intense period of time where you're running and growing an entrepreneurial company and then you are sat you sit there with nothing, um, and it's 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 strange. And every bone in your body is like, "Go do something else. Go do something else. Go find something. You need to find something." And I actually did find something, and um, that that next thing didn't go very well because I didn't do the diligence that I should have done. I I didn't prepare for it the way I should have, and um, and I wanted to just jump into something as opposed to being patient and just being thoughtful about what is next as opposed to just having a next. Um, I love golfing, I love fishing, you know, I love doing those types of things. Uh, and there's only so much of that you can do before like this ambition to like build something, create something, create some value gets to you. And so it was a very strange time. And a lot of guys I talk to who sell their companies, whether it be a startup or a search fund or whatever, they go through the same thing. They're like, what the hell do I do now? You know, everybody thinks it's like a cool thing where you get that big chunk of, of cash in your bank account. For me, it was super anticlimactic. It was like, okay, so what do I do now? Um, you know, in many ways our identities are wrapped up in our companies. And I think that's a really challenging thing that people have to watch out for. Um, and one of the things is now an entrepreneur in my 40s looks at this differently than an entrepreneur in my 20s you know, my family, my, uh, my wife, my kids, my faith is way more important to me than, you know, the business. Whereas the business was way more important to me than anything, you know, a decade ago. Um, and so it's just that change of perspective in terms of where I get my identity. And, and that makes it easier, I think, with dealing with the highs and the lows. It's like, look, the highs are awesome. The lows are terrible, but it's, if I lose this company, I still have the foundation of who I am intact and so that is is really really satisfying and comforting yeah i talk to a lot of
0: people who have had exits or left their company and had some sort of financial windfall and they often reach out to me because they're just totally confused why why Um, do i feel so terrible well, and work. it's the added um pressure of you can't really talk about this in public like if you've had some sort of like 20 million dollar exit nobody wants to hear that you're like struggling
1: um yeah with like your relationship crime year you just sold your company for tens of millions of dollars or you just came off an awesome job where you made a bunch of money and you're super successful it's like Crimea me a river that you're having a hard time you know it's like but I i i, I get it there's almost like an addiction to that that it that adrenaline yeah. that comes with uh you know, running a company and doing something entrepreneurial that um you almost have to wean yourself off of. How did you get from my company as my identity to um
0: all these other things? Family, spouse, kids, spirituality yeah. are more important than my
1: business. Yeah, you know what? Like my my story is a little bit different than most, but um, I I sold my company. I transitioned out. My wife got pregnant, and we actually ended up losing our daughter right after she was born. And so she lived for ten and a half hours and passed away. And so, you know, whether it was you know God or the universe or whatever your listeners believe in, like saying, "Hey, like, reorient yourself to like your family and not so much focused on your your business." Um, you know, it, I don't know, I don't know what, but it, it forced me to, you know, it forced me to focus on my my wife at that point. That was our first child. And so, losing your first, we were a year into marriage. We had just moved, you know, it was like all these kind of things happening at once. And it's just like, man, you know, I need to be refocused on my family. And, and so, I spent the next couple of years just focusing on, you know, keeping my marriage together candidly. Um, and so, for, you know, thank God we have come out of that. You know, stronger than before, but it was, you know, it was a, a forcing function to really relook at at family and how important family is to to who we are as human beings. And and man, the 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 value I get, the feelings I get from you know from family is way better than that of you know making the big win at at work. So um it's it was kind of a blessing, you know, looking back on it. Do you think you had to have the big win to? appreciate that. Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. I think, you know, especially I'm a guy, so I'm going to speak from a guy's perspective and I hang out with a lots of guys and, you know, I think there's something, right? Like once you, ha- once you hit the ball hard, there's a lot less pressure, you know, to, to do it again. You know, and I don't know if it's me proving it to myself or proving it to others. I haven't really kind of figured that out yet, but. I'd like to think it's just me proving to myself that I could do it, and so you don't have to prove anything anymore like hey i I did it, I hit it hard, I don't have to prove anything anymore, and so it makes what I'm doing now just a lot more fun because if it doesn't work out, it's like, okay, you know it doesn't work out you know it's 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 okay, it's not the end of the world again, it's not my identity, my identity is not in my work, and so could I have gotten there without that first big win, I think there probably would have always been something in my soul to be like. I've got to hit one hard, um, and you know maybe that's that's not healthier or what. But I think it's just as as males in this society, like I think we all want to hit one hard. Um, but yeah, I think
0: I think there is something inescapable about, especially like early twenties men. Um, I mean, that's my only experience I can speak from, but just the deep insecurity is probably the opposite side of wanting to prove yourself. Um, So I think for me, like wanting to achieve all these impressive things was really just me trying to channel that insecurity into something impressive that could be proved to other people. Um, But it does seem like the deeper value of some of those things is proving it to yourself, right? Proving to yourself, I am capable of things um, such that it sets you up to make those deeper commitments um, later in life. I think it's Which, real. Uh, yeah. I Which think, brings yeah. us, let's finally talk about uh, crowd health. Sure. Um, would love to dive in. Uh, crowd health is a health sharing service and these have sort of existed. I actually looked into these a few years back and it seemed like most of them were religiously oriented. So maybe you can give a little bit of, the, of a history of what health sharing services are. And then let's dive into the The uh, as I've been calling it, the dumpster
1: fire that is the modern (laughs) U.S.
0: healthcare system.
1: Yeah, you know. So, just to clarify, we are not health sharing. We we um, are a little bit different mechanically than health shares, Um, and so I I can kind of define why that's different. Um, You know, but health health the health sharing has been around for a while and actually got um, you know put into law over the last 25 or 30 years in different states that basically said, hey, if you're part of a faith-based health share, they, they, you have to follow, the health share has to follow six different criteria to be considered a health share. One of which is you have to be founded before, you know, 1999. Um, another oh, is wow. you have to have a faith component. Um, and, you know, and then there's a bunch of others that are more administrative, like you have to be a nonprofit to be a health share. Um, you have to have an audit. You can't kick people out for, you know, getting sick. And there was one more that I can't remember exactly what it was, but it doesn't really matter to the, for the conversation. So there's these six, six things that says, if, if you are kind to call yourself a health share, you have to f- fulfill all of these six. Um, and so, you know, what, 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 I, um, and, and so, you know, there's probably, 30 or 40 of them out of there, out there. Most of them are Christian faith-based ones. I think there's a Jewish one, um, that I've, I've seen recently. Um, but you know, for me it was, um, I, I actually, so I, I sold my company, I sold VRI a couple years and I didn't have health insurance. I was like, okay, I'll go on Cobra. Like, you know, Cobra sucks. Like it's super expensive, but it was thought I was all that I had. And then I, ran out of Cobra and then I said, okay, well I guess I'm gonna go have to go to healthcare.gov, right? And get a plan off of healthcare.gov. And uh, so I got that. It was uh, twelve hundred dollar for me, my wife, and my two girls. And uh so I did have two more girls after I we lost our our first daughter. Um so twelve hundred bucks and I joke it like it worked until I had to use it. My little one was having a recurring ear infection. So he actually had a hole in her ear. And so I went to the to the ear, nose and throat doc who said she needs to get tubes in her ears. So we go to the local hospital, get tubes in her ears. It was a 15 minute procedure, got the bill in the mail and it was $8,000 for 15 minutes. And I'm like, holy crap, 18, eight, or you know, $8,000 for 15 minutes? It's crazy. And I was like, well, this is why I have a health insurance. Like this is the whole point of having health insurance, like something big like this happened. So I didn't really care. And then I got another note in the mail that said it was medically unnecessary and so they weren't gonna pay for it. And so I had to stroke an $8,000 check to the local hospital um, and I was pissed, right? Um, and so I called my health insurance plan. I was like, I'm out, like I'm not doing this anymore. And, you know, for me, a guy had been fortunate, I could pay $8,000, but for 95% of the American public, like eight, you don't have $8,000 sitting around in your bank account, right? And so, um, and in fact, 250,000 families last year who had a health insurance went bankrupt due to a health event. Um, Like the whole point of having health insurance is if you have a big health event, you don't go into financial distress. And now we have 250,000 families every year going bankrupt um, because of, you know, really crappy health insurance. And so I was like, I've got to do something about this. Looked at the health shares, realized that I couldn't do a health share because of these rules. Um, I wanted to open it up to everybody and not just members, you know, people of faith. And so I started a company where we have healthcare crowdfunding is actually the core component of how we um, help people, you know, pay for their bills. Um, and so the mechanics of this is pretty interesting, right? So if Paul were to start with us, um, you know, you would it was it's 175 bucks per person per month. Um, you would put money into an account that we open for you when you start. So 175 bucks goes into that account. We take uh, $30 of it for our subscription fee. The remaining money stays in that account until somebody in the community has a health event. And if they do, then we will go to the community and we'll say, you know, uh, you know, Andy's daughter had a broken arm and it was $6,000. Um, I will pay the first. Andy will pay the first $500 of it. Will 55 of you contribute $100 from that account that you have, the crowdfunding account, to help Andy with his his. Uh, his broken arm, his daughter's broken arm. And if you say yes, then money goes from your account to Andy's account. If you say no, then Crowd Health will just ask the next person. And so, you know, ultimately we can get this crowdfunded from this from this community of now thousands of people. Um, and so we've done, I think it's twelve hundred or thirteen hundred bills over the last year. Um, we've crowdfunded every one of them. And so it's a, a really kind of cool alternative um, to, to health insurance and health shares that's really, really working. You know, the really cool part of it is that account is your account. So if you were to leave, you get the money out of that account, you take it with you. Um, oh, wow. So it's totally different than, than anything else out there. Um, so it's, 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 it's cool. It's been, it's been a lot of fun. Like I said, we have you know thousands of people who have signed up now. And why would or wouldn't you... I uh, say yes to crowdfunding that, yeah, so when I submit a a bill to the community, you will also see my history of giving to others, right? So if I said you know no, 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 to everybody, everybody that you can see that, and you would say probably no to me because I'm a crappy member of the community, right? If I said yes, 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 then you would see that you' would be like, oh, yeah, he's a great member of the community, and so there's this reciprocity kind of engine that that drives the the crowdfunding. That's like, look, if 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 you're a good member of the community, I'm gonna help you out. If you're a bad member of the community, I'm not. So what's it's all incentives. Everybody it incentivizes everybody to be really good members of the of the community. Um, and that voluntary nature of it, and the fact that crowd health doesn't touch your money, keeps us away from you know the, kind of the regulatory issues around you know health insurance because. You know, there's no pooling of funds, there's none of that stuff happening. And so um, we can really operate at a much, much lower cost than health insurance plans. Yeah. And how do you, are there adverse selection
0: effects in terms of like, who's going to join the pool? And um, do you benefit from being outside the healthcare system now? And the fact that like some of the worst, probably I'd imagine if you had really bad health issues, you probably want to be on insurance. And if you're a little more healthy, you might want to be uh, on something like this. Is is that map to the pool you're dealing with?
1: Yeah. It's it's interesting, right? Um, so this is new, it's different. People have been, you know, psyoped to think that, you know, health insurance is like the way, the only way. It's the it's the safe way, right? And so a lot of our people, and I think it's why we do so well with, you know, with you know, sponsoring you. It's like you've got a mem- a group of people who are like, I want to do something different. Like I want to try something, you know, different. And so inevitably we get um younger people, right? Um, our average age is like thirty-six. Um, it's sixty percent male, forty percent for female, it's sixty percent single, forty percent families. And so we are just getting younger people because they are selecting into you know what we are doing, um, and so you know it's not adverse selection. It's actually really you know on the opposite side of that, right? We get we get people who are who are self selecting in are just generally healthier than the the the, the population. Um, the BMI is four four or five points, I you know, lower than the national average. Um, so we're just getting healthy pe- healthy people, um, which is a great foundation from which we can build. Yeah. So I've,
0: I've gone without health insurance several times, um, in the U S over the last five years. Um, and the internet, like the thing that fascinated me was that there were all these sorts of programs for uninsured people. The first of which, which was crazy was, was I've been taking this thyroid medicine for, um, 10 years and, I didn't have insurance, so I went to them. I said, I don't have insurance. Can I use this coupon card? Sure, you can use this coupon card. Uh, It's cheaper. It was cheaper than my previous insured price. Not only that, they were like, how much do you want? I'm like, what do you mean? They're like, you can have unlimited supply. (laughs) They were like, you can have a year's worth because only insurance... um, limits the number of days i was like wait so i can just get this once for the year and it's cheaper this was like mind-blowing to me and then recently last year um, i didn't have insurance for a couple months and then i'm exploring these online services like there's these virtual care doctors that don't take you don't need to take insurance now and it's a lot cheaper you can do like a five-minute appointment if you have like the flu or something um so maybe talk a little bit about um, some of these things that exist because it, I don't even know if it, I wouldn't even call it like a psyop, it's just like people are unaware that this entire ecosystem has emerged around like the edges of like the underinsured or uninsured. Yeah. Um, that it's not as extreme as people think because a lot of the prices people are paying through insurance are imaginary they're imaginary in the sense that like, basically hospitals invent them because they know they'll never get them. Yeah, unless totally. they like find a, a rich person coming in from the Middle East and like paying that top dollar or something.
1: Yeah. Well, I, look, I, all the things that you said are right on. <laughs> we actually provide our members at Crowd Health as a part of your membership, um, access to virtual urgent care, access to virtual primary care, um, we're gonna have virtual specialty care here next. Access to low, really low cost um, prescription drugs. Um, so you know, I for just for example, like I I uh, scheduled an appointment virtually with a primary care doctor. I talked to him for five minutes. He said, "Let's get you some labs." He sent me labs within five minutes. I went to the local lab and I just clicked my phone, and it automatically knew all my data and information. What labs I needed. 24 hours later the labs showed up on my phone so i could see them 24 hours later i was having another conversation with my doctor around the the output of those labs and you know there's a couple of things that were going on with the labs that that i needed a specialist so 24 hours after that i was talking to a specialist on my phone and without even having to leave my you know my couch basically you know i had to go get the labs and that's the only thing that yeah. i had to do and all of that cost me nothing as a member of, of crowd health um, because we're providing that as a part of your subscription service where you know if you were gonna go pay for a doctor online you' probably have to pay 49 59 79 99 depending upon what it is like for a quick virtual visit whereas you know that's a part of your membership with us um, and we have virtual therapy too so if you know, these are like counselors that you can talk to um, So we're providing this whole bundle of services for you for, we'll just say the little stuff, right? So what happens if you have something big? Well, the benefit of what we do is we allow you to pay those doctors in cash. And because of that, the doctors will give us 30, 40, 50% discounts on the versus what the health plan is paying. Not just what the the hospital charges; it's what the 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 health plans pay. And so it's like, why would the doctors do that? Well, it's such a pain in the ass to bill health insurance that the doctors like want cash pay patients, and so they will give a significant discount to cash pay patients. So we had a you know a member in Austin who had a torn ACL, or um, to repair your ACL in Austin, a health plan would be somewhere between twenty and twenty two thousand dollars. We pay. We we found a doctor and a facility that would do it for. I think it was twelve thousand dollars, twelve or thirteen thousand dollars. So that 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 member saved eight thousand dollars, you know, off eight or eight to ten thousand dollars off of that procedure just by paying in cash. And by the way, she only paid five hundred bucks, and we crowdfunded the rest of it from the community to help her pay that, so that she had enough money to pay it on the day of the procedure. Um, and it worked up great. You know, it's like if you can pay doctors in cash, they love you for that um, because they don't want to. They don't want to build a health insurance company. So we're ripping out all that administration, billing administration component that can get us a lot better prices than than uh than you know your your health plan. And we do all that negotiating. So we don't ask our members to negotiate at all. We just we say, hey, just let us know if you have a big event coming up, and we'll we'll take care of it. And what? uh what sort of telemedicine is this so
0: i've had some telemedicine when they're limited on the number of prescriptions they can give you or limited on the length they can give you um what what sort of primary care are we talking with crowd health
1: yeah i mean they can all they can order any lab for you know and they can give you prescriptions for any period of time within the local government regulations um but you know that that's yeah. I mean, there's no right, there's no restrictions for them to 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 give you know a little or or a lot. It's it you know so we we take the approach as like let the doctor and the patient decide what's best for them, and let's stay out of the middle of it, right? Yeah, our- it is your bill, right? We'll help you crowdfund it, but it is your bill, so you are ultimately responsible for it.
0: Aren't there? Certain restrictions for virtual care though, of like what you can prescribe. Um, I'm not sure. I think they were relaxed a little during COVID. Um, yeah. w- what's the current state
1: of those and do they vary by state? Only restrictions that I know of and are, are some of the, the psychiatric, psychiatric and pain related. Yeah, uh, that makes sense. sense. Those are the only ones that I know. Um, there might be others and it and might be you know a lot of these re- re- you know regulations are state based regulations i just don't know what all the 50 state regulations are um but i have not heard once of a member not being able to get the prescription that they wanted outside of of pain and psychiatric meds
0: yeah and you posted this screenshot of a bunch of labs and the oh, prices yeah, yeah. is this the actual uh, thing you were just talking about the yeah, the, labs the actual you got one I did. So the the prices, like, how are the prices that low? Like, I was impressed.
1: Um, I mean, that's like that's where, the where, receipt, I think, that I posted yeah. up there, the electronic receipt. Yeah, so it's a, it's a really funny story, right? And and this is one of the cool things, I think, about CrowdHealth is, so, look, I'm the CEO of CrowdHealth, so I should be behaving in a way that I want my customers to behave, right? So. Yeah. I go to my director my primary care doc and he says, you need to get labs. I'm like, great. I need get labs. They give me the order for the labs. And I'm like, you know what? There's this lab right across the street from where I live. Like maybe I should just go there. Right. It's just easy. And I won't go to the crowd Health's lab, the one that they have a relationship with. I'm just going to go there. And so I priced it out as $431. I was like, Ooh, that seems like a lot. Maybe I should check out like what crowd health is. And so I send it to my care advocate internally at Crowd Health. Everybody at, at, who is a member has a care advocate that they can text, they can call, they can email. Um, and mine is Jasmine. I said, hey, Jasmine, I'm just wondering how much these tests would be. And so she's like, let me check for you and came back and was like, that will be $44. I was like, hold on a second. Like I can walk across the street and get it for 431 or I can go two miles down the street and get it for 44. Um, you know, that's pretty incredible. And so, yeah, we've got a relationship with a, a, a nationwide network of, of labs that allow us to get labs at just a ridiculously low prices. And for the same labs, if the hot or an insurance plan were to do it within a hospital system, it would have been $731, I think. And so, you know, it's, it's incredible that wow. we're getting it for basically, you know, my math is not great, 5% ish of, you know, what the health plan would pay for a similar set of labs. And by the way, you see them on my Twitter, right? It's everything. It's metabolic. It's lipids. It's liver. It's kidney. It's you know your your analysis. Uh, it's everything, right? That you'd want for your your uh, you know direct primary care annual lab. Yeah, I'm actually gonna just pull it up for the video.
0: <laughs> so I have it on the the screen now. It's a, yeah, it's like 4288. Um, what? T- Tell me, though, like, why do we not know how much anything costs? Like, why are prices so all over
1: the place? Yeah, because we've been trained to just put down our insurance card and not worry about how much it costs. Right. Like typically what we do is we go to the doctor and we we throw down our insurance card and we don't know if it's covered or not covered because we have this kind of, you know, high time preference mentality where it's like, I want to deal with it now and not worry, you know, worry about the consequences of it later. Um, and so then you get a mail, something in the mail from your health plan that says, Oh, by the way, that was eight thousand dollars for your daughter's, you know, ear tubes, and now you have to pay for it, right? And so um, we've just been, you know, it's just been ingrained in us to put down the insurance card and then and not deal with it, let the insurance company deal with it. And 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 therefore there's really no consumerism in healthcare. You know, and I, the thing I tell people is like, why is why are healthcare costs so high? And you know you'd be shocked to 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 know this right maybe you wouldn't cuz you know healthcare well but like you know if the buyer and the seller of healthcare want the prices to go up the prices are going to go up so who are the buyers and the sellers of healthcare the buyer is the health plan the health plan makes money by the difference between the premiums and the claims so they actually have an incentive for the premiums to go up and the claims to go down or in essence yeah. they want to charge you more and they want to decline more um, of your health events, you know. So we have a we have a, a you know an agent that is working for us that's actually working against us. So we have a principal agent problem here, right? Like we need to take agency over our own our own healthcare cost. And who's the seller of healthcare? It's the hospital systems. Like they clearly want the price to go up. So you have the buyer and the seller of healthcare both wanting the price to go up. The price is going to go up. You know, it's the consumer, it's us that are getting screwed because we're paying these ridiculous prices for for healthcare. Um, and so, you know, for, for, for crowd health, we take a subscription fee, it's 30 bucks a month, right? We, we actually have every incentive in the world to crowdfund your bill. Cause if we don't crowdfund your bill. Paul is going to go tell his, you know, 10,000 people on his newsletter that, you know, crowd health didn't pay the bill and it would totally blow up my, our, our business model. Right. And so we don't help you get that funded. Um, that's bad for us <laughs> and the only way we make more money is that we get more people in the community. And the more people in the community, the more people that can crowdfund your health bill. So it's better for the community. So our incentives are totally aligned. Yeah, and just for the record, for the listeners, I am
0: not a uh, member yet, but I'm currently- I'm trying, I'm working pr- on you again. I'm working on you. No, I, I am likely going to join. Um, I basically just wanted to like bring you on to to answer all my questions, which- There you go. You, right. you, you sort of have, i like- in my conception, like the way I would think about it is like, so I've explored these uninsured avenues and there are a lot of like things I can tap into, but there are certain things I can't really access. I can do direct primary care. Um, but I can't, um, I can't really access a lab, right? Um, Mm -hmm. I can sign up for something like, um, one medical and get access to okay. primary care. And I can uh-huh. do that on my own without insurance. And it's a pretty decent cost. Um, but if I then need to go do a lab, I need to go to like Quest and I need to play, pay like market rates, which aren't really a market at all. They're just like a screw you rate. Um, <laughs> um, but you're, you have kind of gone and like directly negotiated and say we have this pool of members, this pool of members is growing and you can have a little more market pressure than me as an individual. So in some ways, like you're, you're creating a pool of like underinsured people who are gaining market power the
1: more people you add. Yeah, that's absolutely what we're doing. And we're doing something, we're buying things as a a group that we can buy as a group way cheaper than you can go buy on your, your own. And so for that $30 that we bring in, I can, do, I can get you unlimited virtual to primary care an unlimited urgent care, right? So instead of going to the urgent care doc, you can get an urgent care doc on for fifteen minutes on your fo- in fifteen minutes on your phone, right? All those kind of virtual services you have access to with us, and you don't have to pay for them one by one, and we can do it a lot cheaper than than you can do it as an individual. And then if there's something big that happens, like a biggie, right? Um, then you have a community of people who have proven that they are willing to help you fund your your bills. Um, and we have you know 12 or 1300 bills to prove it, that, that these members are willing to help. And how does, how does direct
0: specialty care work, especially virtually? Because I yeah. know traditionally, and even in the last couple of years, like direct primary care has definitely become a thing, it's growing, um, but direct specialty care has been increasingly purchased by hospital systems and put behind gates and harder to access. Um, so talk to
1: me about some of the evolution there. Yeah, and you need a referral from your direct primary care yeah. doctor and all this kind of stuff. It's like, no, like if you have a concern, then, um, you know, for example, I'll just be, you know, be candid with you is, you know, I, I had these uh, these labs and I have like I'm I'm 43. I'm 185 pounds. I'm six foot two and I have super high cholesterol. <laughs> um my my LDL cholesterol for all the nutrition people out there was like twice what it should be and uh, so I was like okay I know what it, I want to talk to somebody about this like I want to talk to somebody who know who understands lipids which is cholesterol um, and so I used a crowd health uh, service where I can talk to a specialist at any time within typically 24 to 48 hours um, and talk to them about my lipids you know or my, Colon cancer, or my gout, or you know, you know, clearly I, I, uh, colon cancer would be an oncologist, and gout would be a rheumatologist. But like, there are a, a host of of people that I can talk to through this um, virtual specialty care, and I can do it either on the phone or virtually, you know, all through my Crowd Health app. The virtual specialty care is going to go live in about thirty day thirty to sixty days, um, so that's almost here. But I was basically testing it out for me, and it worked. Brilliantly, it's like I'm talking to somebody at you know an academic health center you know, that knows what they're talking about, um, and they're the leading one of the leading you know the thought leaders in in lipids. And it's like, man, that's cool. Like, I would not have access to that if I had the regular healthcare.
0: And what what is the like? Where are things headed? Do you see a hundred times more options like yours branded to different micro communities or different right. topic areas? Um, I mean, can you only exist because of how much of a dumpster fire the default system is?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, th- I so we've had people ask us, you know, well, why don't you do, you know, pet insurance and and long-term care insurance, you know, alternatives to those things? Yeah. So I was like, look, there's just not as much um, you know, crap in that dumpster to put on fire and those 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 t- kind of pieces of, of the insurance landscape, you know, we can go to a doctor and get 40% better pricing in, in healthcare. Um, and so let's focus on that. And so I, I think, you know, I, I, we have a goal of 400,000 people um, by you know 2030, which we think we're going to be able to hit. Um, and, you know, hopefully it's way, way more than that. But, you know, I it, it takes a little bit of time to get people to have behavior change around this. So there's this Kind of an apathy. It's like the devil you know versus the devil you don't, right? And everybody's not really sure about something new, especially when it comes to their healthcare. So it's it takes us a while to get people, you know, bought in. But but I think that's why we're getting a lot of people in their you know twenties, thirties, and early forties to do this because they're like, man, I, I'm I, I'm not I haven't been indoctrinated into the health insurance space yet. So um, and you know the other thing we have too is this health insurance that's connected to your your employer, which I think is awful. You know, the Rand Corporation yeah. had a study that came that's out. That's kind like, of the original sin of U.S. healthcare. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so there's 4 million people out there that would go and do something entrepreneurial if it wasn't for them having to get their health insurance through their employer, right? And so it's anti-American that your, your health care is tied to your employer. So, you know, and, and people are like, oh, well, my, my employer is paying for it. And I was like, well, actually, you're paying for it. You know, the money that your employer is paying for your health insurance, they could be paying you, you know, a higher salary, right? Um, and then yeah, the government, that, some that's tax- one, this. that's
0: one people have such a hard time understanding. There's pretty good economic research behind showing that people are basically just getting paid lower salaries in the U S Oh yeah. the problem, the problem is we have some of the highest labor share of income in the world. So like our salaries are pretty good, especially for like knowledge workers in the U S, um, but it's pretty substantial. Um, Russ Roberts had a great guest on where he highlighted this research paper. I'll link it in the, the notes, but he was saying like, it's basically just a pay cut for yeah. people. Um, that is why they're getting health insurance. But like, it's just people's default, so they're, they're used to it. But if you offered people, would you take the pay rise and figure things out on your own? Like a lot of people would start thinking very different.
1: We have a lot of customers who 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 do that, who actually go to their HR people and be like, Hey, instead oh, wow. of paying five thousand dollars for my health insurance, will you give me three thousand dollars? Like increase my salary by three thousand dollars and you save two thousand, I get my three thousand, um, I can then go do whatever I want with it. You know, for an individual at crowd health, it's about two thousand dollars a year. Um, and so you know, you're basically on the same place. But you don't have massive huge deductibles with with Crowd Health. You own your own healthcare. Um, you don't have doctor networks that you have to go to. Like you get some freedom from you know the health insurance system. And so you know we have people who do that. About thirty percent of our our members come to us from health insurance, like you know legitimate health insurance. They said no to. They've opted out of, and, wow. and come over to us um, about 60 to 65% of people, um, are uninsured. So they could come to us from being uninsured. And then the rest are like health shares and things like that. So, um, we got a decent chunk of people who, who, who are willing to make that call to HR to see, and a lot of them, you know, get funds to do it. What are the risks of your approach? Are there
0: metrics or things you watch that are Hey, if this hit a certain threshold, this is an existential risk for this kind of model. Um, like,
1: how do you think about um, the business? Yeah, it's 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 it's, it's um, fewer kind of financial metrics, although we do pay attention to those. So, for for example, you know, for every hundred dollars that our members have put in, um, about thirty dollars or about seventy dollars, sixty-five to seventy dollars are still in their account right? Which means that we've only asked them to crowdfund somewhere between 30 and 35% of their funds thus far. So like I said, if you leave, you get to take those funds with you. Um, They're yours. And so, you know, we do look at that just because we want our members to be, you know, cognizant of that. Um, And they actually now have an incentive not to, you know, be dumb when buying their healthcare. Yeah, you know, I gave the example of me where I was like, I could have done four thirty-five, or I did four forty-four dollars, or forty-eight dollars, or whatever that was. Um, you know, but I think that the biggest risk to the, our business is, look, we've got these um, insurance uh, departments across the country. You know, each each state has one. Each state wants to you know regulate everything and anything that looks like health insurance, and so. Um, we've actually, you know, just raised our A round about a month ago um, to 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 battle some of these, you know, insurance departments that, you know, under consumer protection, right? They want to regulate, you know, us, and so I was like, look, oh, we're not insurance; we don't take on any risk, um, we don't pool any resources, we don't touch the money, we don't do any of these things, and so we think it's going to be hard hard for them to do that. But that's the number one risk of the of the business. Um, yeah,
0: and I mean. I think one of the biggest shifts um, I wish people would make about healthcare, and especially like older generations, they just think the U.S. healthcare system is like this sacred thing. And it does a lot of great things, right? We're inventing like the best in the world vaccines and things like that. Um, But it's not capitalism. (laughs) No, it's it's not. (laughs) Hospitals can veto um, any other thing that looks like a hospital from being built in most states, I believe. Um, And all sorts of crazy things like that.
1: So it's not actually a free market. You want to build an ambulatory surgery center, which is a surgery center, an outpatient surgery center generally. And in, I think it's something like 30 states. I don't know what it is, but it's something like 30 states. The local hospital has to approve that (laughs) before you can build it. Now, like these ambulatory surgery centers, their cost structure is about half of what a hospital is, right? And so- like it's these crazy lobbyists that we have in all these states that are creating these rules to build moats around hospital systems and and health insurance companies, and so, you know, that's why I say that's our number one risk is like we've got uh, a healthcare industry, you know, I call it a medical industrial complex that basically is funding legislators um, to then pass laws to restrict. Um, any kind of competition that they have in their in their local markets. And so it is an uphill battle. that is if it, it, it feels like 1984 kind of stuff, right? I mean it's 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 kind of crazy that it can happen in this country, but it does. Well, and I think it's so big. like my background
0: system dynamics and the scale and scope of the system is such that it's sort of self um, self-sustaining and self uh, growing. Like it's just going to absorb things everywhere around it, and like there's no actual person in charge anymore, and that's like yeah. hard for people to understand. It's not like one person can just like fix the system. Like, sure, um, they tried that with Obamacare, and the system just absorbed all sorts of <laughs> attempts and turned it into its own profits. Um, do you yeah. have, do you have uh, other plans with healthcare? Like, what other bets are you trying to make to support this more broadly?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I think that um, we're trying to create as much virtual first as we can to really um, you know, streamline the, the healthcare system, especially for people who don't want to go into hospitals and clinics, right? So, you know, the only piece of that scenario in which I described earlier about me getting my labs for my virtual drug primary care is I actually had to go to a lab to do it. You know, eventually what we'd like to do is have, you know, your phlebotomist come to you. So, you know, I can sit here doing a podcast with you while I'm getting my blood drawn for my lab. So you you literally don't have to walk outside of your house to get all this stuff done. You know, and, and, and you know, ultimately what healthcare has been built upon is a business to business relationship, right? It's the hospitals and the insurance plans that are driving the vast majority of the decisions within healthcare. And so the consumer has been left out of that equation. And so what we're trying to do is build a direct to consumer healthcare company and, and, and really put the consumer in the middle of it to provide you just a wicked great experience with your healthcare. And I think we're getting close. I had a buddy that I saw at church a couple weeks ago and he's like, man, I, uh, I had a, the worst sore throat the other day and he's a, he's a member of Crowd Health. I had the worst sore throat. I got on crowd health. I did the urgent care. I talked to a doctor in 15 minutes. He told me that I probably have strep. He ordered me prescriptions at the pharmacy down the street. I went to the pharmacy. I got my prescription within 15 minutes. It cost me six bucks because I paid in cash. And within 24 hours, my throat was feeling better. I was like, yeah, that's a hell of a lot better than going to urgent care, or you're waiting for your direct primary care to open up on Monday. Like we're trying to build a parallel health system that is just super convenient and for people who are willing to do most of their their healthcare virtually. You know, talking to a doc like like you and I are talking. Yeah,
0: and have how do you deal with extremely expensive uh, prescriptions? Um, yeah, I mean, especially for like certain cancers, uh, these drug companies have monopolies. Sometimes they do let people negotiate. Are you able to
1: uh, negotiate? Yeah, here's the beauty of this and this freaks some people out. I kind of love it because I'm a contrarian, but we're all uninsured. You know, like I've been uninsured for two and a half years. You know, I, I kind of say I'm delightfully uninsured because it's so freeing. Um, but if you're uninsured, then these pharmaceutical companies will negotiate with you for the price of these 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 drugs. So we're getting you know drug prices that are significantly lower than what United Healthcare is paying because we're negotiating for our members to pay it directly, but they are uninsured. Um, And so we're getting, you know, way better prices. And in the cases where they, the pharmaceutical company won't, like, I still think we have a big enough community so that if I have a $10,000 a a month drug and, you know, and I have several thousand people, then it's, you know, a buck, two bucks, three bucks or whatever per person, you know, per month to help you out with a drug. And, and we've seen our community step up and and do that. So, you know, for big, some of these big events. And so I'm I'm very, very comfortable that if I got sick and needed one of these really expensive drugs that the crowd health community would step up and, and help me. You know, funny enough, we had a, a member who got um, her, uh, her hand caught in the prop of a boat. Uh, oh. This was like two or three months ago. And I, it severed four of her fingers. You know, so we, we sent this crowd health request, our crowdfunding request out to our members. We had members come back and say, can I give more than you asked? Wow like, because they're like, they're, they're a part of the community. They, they, they want to help. Like we had another member who had a miscarriage they're like, is there any way we can send her flowers or like, you know, help her out? But it's, you know, we have thousands of people in our community, but people still feel like they're a part of something that's mission driven and trying to change healthcare, which is you would never see anybody in insurance being like, uh, insurance plan. Can I pay more this month for my premium? (laughs) Like, it's just not going to happen. Right. Um, so we have this pretty cool kind of community component going on, but look, I think there's something innate in us because we've been doing this for thousands of years. Like it's just our, our natural born desire to like help our neighbor, right? Like back in the day when there wasn't insurance companies and somebody got sick, like the neighbors in the community would gather around them and and help, you know, and, and in the seventies, primarily the insurance companies are now like wedging themselves in between yeah. us and our community, right? So let's take that back out, bring community back into being, you know, the, the source of our, our healthcare, you know, um, you know, funding. And I think there's some really cool kind of impacts to that. That's, yeah, and that's actually, I mean,
0: that's how insurance got started, right? Insurance was local communities and usually through local churches. And it was people that knew each other like we were
1: never meant to be in these insured pools of strangers. (laughs) Yeah. Blue Cross Blue Shield started back in, I think the twenties or early thirties. And it was uh, a way just to pay your hospital. I think you paid your hospital, like, I don't know what it was a dollar a month or something like that. And they would take care of you for anything that you got sick. And that was like the start of insurance, but it was your community hospital that was taking care of you. Right. And now it's, you know, United Healthcare is, I think, the sixth or seventh largest company in the planet by revenue. You're right? That's yeah. that's how insurance companies have taken over the world. And now, United Healthcare is also the number one owner of doctors in the country. So you could have United Healthcare Insurance, who's supposed to be negotiating with your doctor to get a good rate, but they also own the doctor. So there are some conflicts there.
0: <laughs> well, I'm looking this up. Uh yeah, the former CEO of UnitedHealth took home $142 million last year. So it's it's a lot of money he's making from uh, insurance. Yeah. Which yeah. I'm, I'm a big fan of like making profits, but I don't know, that just seems off for me.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, when it comes at the expense of other people, I don't think, you know, there aren't very many of us that are like, hey, yeah, I want to profit off the expense of others, you know, and that's ultimately what, what is happening here, you know, and, and, um, we're going into open enrollment. So I think all of your, or 80% of the country, something like that is making healthcare decisions, like in the next two or three months. And so, you know, all I ask your listeners like, Hey, you know, reconsider like what your, you know, your brain kind of tells you is like, <laughs> the way to go, like consider other, other options. Cause these healthcare.gov plans, they deny almost one in five claims. Like, yeah, so you know you have a one in five chance to be me, right? Which is eight thousand dollars for my daughter's ear tubes, you know. And so, um, and they're being regulated by people in which they're paying, you know, you know, via co- political contributions and lobbying and all this kind of stuff to uh, to be on their side. So you know, it's just a like I said, it's a medical industrial complex. Awesome. And what?
0: I know you're doing some experiments with uh, crypto and Bitcoin as well. Yeah. How does how does that parallel uh, with this? I mean, it looks like right now you're using um, you're allowing people to pay in Bitcoin, but it's still pretty much the same business model. Um, how yeah. are you thinking about like crypto investments and things like that um,
1: down the road? It's the same business model. I mean, we. Um, I'm, I'm a I'm a Bitcoin fan, and you know, I, and, and a part of this is. You know, health insurance companies, one of the reasons why healthcare costs keep going up is health insurance hold their money in this big pool of, of you know, dollars, which is melting, you know, right now, what was it was eight and a half percent or something like that last month. And so the value of that is going down. And so they have to charge you more to replace the, you know, the, the value decline of that, of that pool. And so, you know, I have offered our members to be able to, to actually hold their dollars in that account in Bitcoin, um, and it's actually not held in that account. We have a partnership with Swan Bitcoin, where it's it's held in the members' account at Swan. And then, you know, if if we you know have a crowdfunding event that uh, requires you to, you can either sell your Bitcoin or you can put some more dollars into your account to to cover that. And then, you know, Bitcoin goes from I don't know we're at eighteen or nineteen thousand right now, and it goes to a hundred thousand. Um, all that appreciation of that Bitcoin is yours. Like that's not ours. It's not the community's. It's yours. It's your account, right? So you can take that with you. So in essence, what you're doing is you're you're investing. Um, in addition to you know helping other people in the community, and we think that's a pretty cool thing. You know, as opposed to just sending it to United Healthcare and it goes into this black hole of health insurance land that you never get to see again. So um, we think it's a pretty cool component.
0: Awesome. This has been super helpful. This probably the most in-depth uh, healthcare deep dive I've done on here. But um, w- where else can people learn about what you're up to uh, with Crowd Health? Um, I think if they use the code Boundless, um, they'll get a uh, a discount. But uh, yeah, any any other
1: things you want to leave people with? Yeah, no, um, definitely use Boundless. Um, you, you get it uh, for ninety nine bucks a month, as as opposed to one seventy five for a while, and so that's kind of cool. Um, and then if you were probably most active on Twitter, which is join Crowd Health. Um, I'm my Twitter handle is Schoonover S C H O O N O B E R Andy, um, but that's where we're. But you can find us on on, on any of the Facebook, TikTok, um, Instagram. Just most active on on Twitter. Awesome. Or or go to joincrowdhealth.com, which is our our, our website. Awesome. Well, I'll link up to that in the
0: the show notes. I really appreciate you sharing your story uh, today. It was fun to learn a little bit more about your path, search funds, healthcare, et cetera, and uh, rooting for you and uh, helping you to uh, unleash more people to be solopreneurs, entrepreneurs, and all of that. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to The Pathless Path. I love having these conversations. And if you want to support me, you can rate, review, or subscribe on your favorite podcast app. You can also follow me on YouTube, where I post all the video interviews of this podcast as well. Finally, you can always support me by buying my book, The Pathless Path. It's a book I'm really proud of and has most of my best thinking and probably my best writing in it. And you can get it for less than 20 bucks. So grab that. It's in the show notes. And thank you for listening.